June of 1803, Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to Captain Meriwether Lewis. And he gave him a mission in this letter. So the object of your mission is to explore the Missouri River and such principal stream of it as by its course and communication with the waters of the Pacific Ocean may offer the most direct and practicable water communication across the continent for the purpose of commerce. I think this is how presidents wrote before Twitter. It's a little different today. Uh, if it's a little bit wordy, what Jefferson is charging Captain Meriwether Lewis and 2nd Lieutenant William Clark to do is to find the Northwest Passage, a river passage that would connect the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans by way of the Northwestern United States through a land of the Louisiana Purchase that had recently been uh, purchased from France and Napoleon. And it was believed that if this Northwest Passage could be found, that it would open up intercontinental trade. This was viewed as such an important historical moment that, that four nations had been sending explorers to find this passage for over 300 years. Everyone knew it was somewhere, but no one had found it yet. Jefferson believed that Meriwether Lewis and William Clark had exactly what was needed to find it. They had the river navigation skills to go up the Missouri, uh, to go all the way across until it would reach uh, the headwaters of the Missouri, and they would crest uh, a slight peak and head towards the Columbia River, which would then take them downhill the rest of the way to the Pacific. Everyone knew it was somewhere. And if you could find it, then it would be so influential, and it would give you so many financial resources and so much influence and so much power for your country that it would be like owning the Internet today. This is how important this exploration was viewed. It was so important uh, that once the Spanish learned that they were doing this, that the Spanish sent out two different war parties to try and kill Lewis and Clark's Corps of Discovery before they could get where they had been charged to go. You know, after 15 months of backbreaking work navigating upstream in the, the Missouri River, they'd reached the headwaters where the river began. They had endured so much to get to this exact moment where, where they were ready to go up a small hill above the Missouri River and then go down towards the Pacific. They had spent many nervous nights in strange lands. They had undergone uh, attacks from mosquitoes galore. They had undergone a dark and cold winter. At one point, measuring a temperature of, of 45 degrees below zero, the coldest uh, ever measured uh, in the United States to that time. They faced grizzly bears, a month-long portage around an immense waterfall. They experienced an, an, the loss of the death of a companion. But they'd reached their destination. They reached what everybody knew would be the climax of this exploration, of this great adventure. He was about to realize the dream of centuries of pioneers, fulfill the wishes of his government and become famous forever for finding the Northwest River Passage, having his name added to the annals of great adventurers and explorers throughout history. After all, they were recruited for this trip for their river boating and navigational skills, and they'd made it up one river and were about to go down the next. Lewis, like everyone else, thought that he would walk up this hill, 
looked down a gentle slope that would take his men probably half a day to cross, just with their canoes on their shoulders, and see the Columbia River. Finally, after months of going upstream, they could simply float downriver all the way to the Pacific Ocean. The hardest stuff was behind them. They were confident. Of course, they could not have been more disappointed. What Lewis instead discovered at the top of that hill was that 300 years of explorers and experts had been completely wrong. There was no gentle slope to a gentle down river, downflowing river. There were, in fact, rocky mountains stretching for miles and miles as far as the eye could see was one set of peaks after another. There was no Northwest Passage. As they looked upon the Rocky Mountains, it became clear as they stretched so far in either direction that there was no river that could trespass these mountains in any direction. Uh, it was clear that there was no water route. There was no navigable river. The greatest adventurers and minds of their time were completely mistaken. In fact, the entire theoretical model of the layout of this continent was completely wrong. They assumed that uh, the land that was west of the Great Divide would be just like the land from the east and would descend in the same way that it did in the east, also on the west. That the land would rise gently to a peak from the east and descend gently to the ocean on the west. Certainly, the Native American, the Maiden tribes, and others had warned them there are mountains ahead, but they weren't worried. They assumed that it was the same rounded treetop bluff of the Appalachians that they had already crossed before, or the same as the mountains that lay ahead. Even seeing the peaks, the jagged peaks of the Rockies for miles ahead of them did not compute. They were so much bigger than anything that European Americans had ever seen that they couldn't even make what their eyes were showing them fit their understanding of reality as they approached the eastern foot of the Rocky Mountains. Everything about their journey changed except the goal. The goal stayed the same, that they were supposed to find a way to get to the Pacific Ocean, but everything else changed. They needed new skills and new types of leadership. They needed new allies and they needed new resources. They needed uh, their canoes that they expected to float to the Pacific were now good for nothing more than firewood. No experts, no maps, no idea what truly lay ahead. And I tell you this story because I believe that it's an incredible illustration and allegory for the situation that the church finds itself in today. There's not really a happy face to put on it, is there, Jimmy? That the world that we're living in is a troubled times, and it's a difficult world, and there's mountains ahead. And a lot of times the church in our history has expected to, to top this gentle hill ahead of us, and when we get to the top, to, to see a gentle river that will take us to our destination. But the reality is that the church doesn't live in a world of gentle hills and gentle rivers today. We live in a place where the church is really in crisis in the West. The church in Europe and the United States is, is living in a landscape that it's never been in before. 
And we assumed that the future would be like the past, that what's ahead of us would be like what was behind us. But when we get here, we suddenly look ahead and realize that there's mountains ahead that we may not have planned for. There's a futurist, which would be a cool job. There's a guy named Bob Johansson who's a futurist. I like reading things that futurists write because their job is to sit around and guess what's coming in the future. Uh, they don't have crystal balls. They actually use sociology and, 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 and scientific methods to understand the present, or the present to better understand the future. Jordan slipped there. Um, he writes that this is true not just for the church, uh, but it's true in almost every area of life today. That after centuries of stability and slow incremental change, this is worldwide, in less than a generation, our world has become what he calls VUCA, V-U-C-A, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. This VUCA world will not only become more so in the days ahead, it will require all leaders to learn new <coughs> skills. We live in a different and challenging world. So much so that Christian leaders today often feel like Meriwether Lewis sitting above the headwaters of the Missouri River on Limhigh Pass looking at a mountainous landscape that he could never have imagined. Christian leaders today go to meetings, conferences, they read books and articles. If you read the Christian Chronicle over the last year, you've been reading this articles about what do we do about the decline of congregations and churches and the movement that, that many of us have been a part of for some part of our lives or generations. What do we do about the changes that are so clearly happening now and are so clearly happening in the near future? What do we do? What do we do when we face the brutal truth that all that we have assumed about leading Christian organizations and churches, all that we've been trained for was for what lies behind us and not for what lies ahead? It's out of date. And we need new leadership, adaptive models of developing the world around us. Missionaries have been doing this uh, for centuries. When a missionary goes into a new place, you have to learn the lie of the land, the, ha the habits of the people, the culture, the world that's around them. And there's multiple missionaries who write about how they left their homes in the West and would go and spend 20 or 30 years in the mission field, only return to their homes, whether in England or France or the United States, and find that the church that they left to go to the mission field had become a mission field while they were gone. A mission field that is often harder and tougher with less fertile soil than the ones where they had invested their lives. This is the waters we're swimming in, the world that we live in, the mountains that are ahead. We cannot reuse the successes of the past to solve today's problems, as many of those very approaches have helped create some of the problems the church has today. You can't use a canoe to cross the mountains. We've left the map. We've gone into uncharted territory. We need new skills, new experts, new approaches to achieve the same goals we've always had. Because the goalposts haven't moved. The vision is still the same. God is still calling his people to be a light and salt in a world that desperately needs Walt. Walt? Sight, whoop, sight and Walt? Yep. And see, that's how you say salt and light in the mountains. So just get used to it. It's a different world that we're living in today. It's a world of challenges. 
We need to understand some of the challenges that the church faces today. And then I've, I've got some tough news. I want to look this in the face. And then we're going to look at some of the good news that's still in the Bible that still applies to Christians yesterday, today, and forever. There is not a circumstance in the history of the world, past, present, or future, that the gospel will not be good news to those who are in Christ. Amen. And so we can't get discouraged, but we also can't just put a smiley face on our situation. We need to understand that if we're going to get through the mountains, we're going to need new strategies, new leaders, new tools, new skills, new approaches. We're going to have to get missional in the way that we think about living in this place as the kingdom people that God's called us to be. You know, some of the challenges we face today is, is that when you read about it in books, they talk about how the church has left Christendom in the West. That's not a phrase we use in the Church of Christ a lot, but what it, it basically means is this, that I remember when I was, uh, I went to Mustang High School and Mustang schools all growing up here in the West part of the city. Uh, when I was growing up in Mustang schools, I remember when we had a student move from California in eighth grade, and he was the new kid. And the new kid let slip a detail about his life that shocked all of us who were at my middle school. Mustang's not a small school. I had a graduating class of over 500. Uh, and, and we learned something about this new student when he said, uh, someone asked him, what church do you go to? Uh, he said, I don't go to church. I said, why don't you go to church? He said, I'm, I'm an atheist. He was shocked that that shocked us. But boy, did it shock us. You see, we all expected that a new kid from a new place would pick one of our churches to go to because we were living in some part of Christendom, where the default setting is that everyone believes in some version of Christianity and practices some form of Christian faith on Sunday mornings. That was the default, even as recently as when I was in eighth grade. I won't tell you when it is, but it's not as long ago as you probably think it is. <laughs> That's all we're going to say about that. He was harassed. He was kind of made fun of. He was, you know, all the kids gathered around and, and the rumors started spreading to everyone in my school. You've got to come see the new kid. He's an atheist. And we all wanted to gather around because we hadn't seen one before. <laughs> this was Christianity in Oklahoma a few years ago. Today, if you talk to our teens, they're at Winterfest right now, but if you talk to our teens and you ask them, do you know anyone who doesn't believe in God or Jesus or go to church? Their answer is, yeah. Yeah, the default setting for our kids is to grow up in a world where kids that are friends of theirs at school have never been to church, that don't have any faith, that aren't being raised with faith being talked about in the home, that aren't reading the Bible. They don't, that's the new default, even here in whatever part of the Bible Belt you think Oklahoma may be. The default has moved. That's what it means that we've left Christendom is that the church used to be at the town center, in the center of the town square, and you build the whole city and community life around it, and that's not true anymore. Our influence is not what it once was. Uh, there is a, a writer who I like a lot named James Smith who likes to say that we've gone from a time in our country where everybody was a Christian without giving it much thought to a time when a few people are Christian with great thought and great conviction. Now, we can talk a lot about which one of those is better and the advantages and disadvantages of both, but what's clear is that the, we're in the mountains now. 
We're not canoeing in the Missouri River anymore. Things have changed. Things are not the way they once were. It's harder to be a Christian in our world today than it was 20, 30, 50 years ago. Not only that, not only has, has the influence of the church moved, but we live in a truly secular age. And when I say a secular age, I don't mean that it's secular in the sense uh, that, that things that happen at church are Christian and things that happen outside of church are secular. Like you have your church life and you go to work and you have your secular life. I don't mean it that way. And I don't mean uh, that it's like Christians versus secular people. Like it's, there's the, the lost people and they're secular and there's the Christian people and we're saved. I don't mean it that way. What I mean, and this has come to be a common thing that, that many writers are talking about and leaders are thinking about, is that our age is secular in that none of us expect God to show up. And none of us expect God to interrupt our lives, not even the people who are faithfully attending churches on a regular basis. That the mindset of science and secularism and the physical world have so penetrated our worldview that even we who go to church on Sunday mornings and pray, God, if you're willing, do this in my life, don't expect it to happen. That we don't think that God is either powerful enough or interested enough or present enough to make a difference in our lives and the world around us so that we become, even as faithful Christians who believe Jesus Christ died and was resurrected and that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, don't know if it's going to make much of a difference to Tuesday. That's the secular age that we live in. We have very little expectation that God's going to interrupt or make a difference in the world Church is going to struggle if it stays in that kind of worldview, in that kind of paradigm. That we believe that we live in a physical box that God just sits on the outside of, looking at us like we're some kind of a human zoo that's interesting, but not really worth him bothering. Secular age. Church faces other challenges and problems. Why spirituality continues to become increasingly popular in our world. People actually are bothered in the world by the echoes of spirituality. I, I, someone once wrote, I no longer believe in God, but I miss him. There's an ache and a longing for spirituality and a connectedness to something that is beyond and above the physical. But they don't want to call that God, and they don't want to be Christian, and they don't want to go to church. So why spirituality continues to be on a bigger high and is increasing in popularity... The fastest growing religious demographic for people under 30 is the nuns. What's your religious affiliation? None. Or the other one that's very similar is spiritual non-religious. Spiritual non-religious. Fastest growing demographics in the groups of our country that are under the age of 30. And this is affecting the church. You can't live in this kind of an environment and not be affected if you're going to be a Christian community. And so it's starting to result in the decline of churches and their attendance and their membership. Uh, just looking at Churches of Christ, in the last three years, with the best data that we have on Churches of Christ, it appears that Churches of Christ are losing 2,000 members and nine churches are closing every month in the United States of America. In the United States today, 55% of churches of Christ have an average attendance of 34 people. 
over half of the churches that are meeting right now have less than 34 people in the room. Right now, uh, the vast majority uh, of Christians have been part of the same church that they've been in for 20 to 30 years, which means that we're not doing evangelism. There's no new Christians in the room. There's no new Christians in the pews or the chairs, whichever seating arrangement you have. We don't have new growth. The average church has 60% of its members, two-thirds of its members are over the age of 50. Physical deaths outpace both spiritual and physical births. Right now, if you're sitting in this room in Northwest Church of Christ, this church that you're a part of is larger than 92% of churches of Christ in the United States of America. We're not that big, guys. We're not that big, but it doesn't mean that God doesn't have great things in store for us. But unless... Unless God intervenes or we learn to develop new vision and mission, our decline as a movement, which is made up of so many congregations, which are all going through these same growing pains, or the opposite of growing pains, these problems of decline, and these are becoming irreversible. Unless God intervenes or we learn how to find new vision and new ways to navigate the mountains, we're not going to make it. We're not going to have anything to contribute to what God is doing in the world. And this isn't just true for churches of Christ. We tend to think that, that we're worse than most, but everyone thinks that about their own family, right? Uh, this is the state fair dynamic. You always think that your family is really, really awful until you go to the state fair and realize, you know what, we're not that bad. <laughs> so, so here's the state fair good news, of, uh, good news or bad news, depending on how you understand it is that a lot of the things that are difficult for us are difficult for so many other mainline Protestant and evangelical groups too. Christianity is not what it used to be in the United States and in Europe and the West. Now, you need to know that Christianity in the global South and in the Far East is exploding. It's exploding. In South America, in Africa, in parts of Southeast Asia, in places where the gospel has not been widely received over the past 2,000 years, it is exploding in its growth. We can't even keep track of how many Christians there are in China. The estimates are wild. We thought that, that when communism made Christianity illegal in China, that it disappeared. It didn't. It went underground and got huge. God is not done. His kingdom is not in jeopardy. And so when Jesus is talking to Peter uh, in Matthew chapter 16, and he's talking to him about who he is and their understanding about what that means, uh, in Matthew chapter 16, in verse 15, uh, after they confess that, that different people think different things, but what about you, Jesus asked them, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. 
And so today, when I stand here in front of you and I'm telling you that the church in the United States is struggling and that the waters we swim in are dangerous and there's mountains ahead, to use all the metaphors I can think of to tell you things are tough right now, I don't want you to think that the kingdom of God is in jeopardy because the kingdom of God is going to always win. Jesus is the victor. Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. His kingdom will never be overcome by the gates of hell. The question is, will we, as different congregations who are living in tough places, be willing to get on board with the vision of God and come up with new ways to do the same goals we've always had so that we can be part of that kingdom going forward? That's all that's being asked here. The kingdom of God is not in jeopardy, but what role will we have with where the kingdom is going is a question we've got to be asking. We can't keep trying to canoe over mountains. It doesn't work. There's good news, not just because of the kingdom of God. There's good news for Northwest. While the the statistics about what it looks like to be a Christian in the world that we live in today are troubling, and a church in our world are troubling, Northwest is doing very well. God is blessing us. Last couple weeks, we've celebrated uh, not only what God did at Northwest last year, but we've celebrated what God has been doing at Northwest for the last 10 years because it's worthy of celebrating and giving honor and thanks to a God who keeps answering prayers and keeps blessing Northwest. Uh, In churches at large, when I say a while ago, that something like 60% of churches of Christ are over the age of 50, at Northwest, we have 8 to 12% are equally distributed between almost every age group. Birth to 10, 10 to 20, 20 to 30, 30 to 40. Uh, God is giving us wisdom in our senior years, energy and youth in our younger years. This church is built for vibrancy and life. And it's also giving us the energy to be able to have conversations about vision. This church is not on hospice. This church is filled with God's spirit and with the life that we have an opportunity to live into the world. It's good news for Northwest. Northwest is blessed that while many churches in the neighborhoods around us have closed in the last 10 and 20 years, and even some of our sister churches and churches of Christ have closed in recent years, Northwest has gained two-thirds of our membership has come to Northwest in the last 10 years. God keeps bringing you here, and I believe he's bringing you here to help us figure out how to get over the mountains. Exactly. He's not bringing you here so we can stay in park or in maintenance mode or keep doing the same things we've been doing that aren't resulting in the kingdom of God growing in this place. God's calling us to a new and brighter future. I believe that God has plans to help us navigate the challenges that are ahead. And this congregation has plans to help us navigate the challenges that are ahead. Exodus 33 is is Moses and Israel is headed towards the promised land. There's a moment where God and Israel get in this huge disagreement about whether or not they should worship idols. Israel votes yes, God votes no. It it was a dispute, God won. Okay? At least that round. Exodus 33. I want to read this passage to you. Exodus 33 says this, starting in verse 14. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. This is coming after an argument about whether or not God would even be able to go with Israel. 
Will he be able to go with them without killing them for their inability to stay faithful to him? And the Lord replies, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? In the next verse, the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. What we need to ask God as we move into this season of vision and renewal, of new vision and new mission for Northwest Church of Christ, is we need to cry out to God with the same thing that Moses says, and we need to say, God, if your presence will not go with us, then do not send us from this place. We will not move forward based on our own skills and understanding and vision. We will only move forward if we go forward in the presence of God. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we know that that presence exists in us in the form of his Holy Spirit, which dwells within us, which gives us gift and abilities for loving one another, the building up of the church, and the sending of the church into the world. And so we cry out as we begin asking the questions of, God, how do we get through the mountains ahead? Because it's not like it was in the past. The future looks different. The first thing we have to say is, God, if your spirit doesn't go with us, we won't go. This is an area of scripture and study and faith and practice that, that historically our churches have been a little bit weak in at times even silent in. And so we're going to have to go backwards a little bit and build up some vocabulary of the Holy Spirit, some understanding of the Holy Spirit, some engagement of the Holy Spirit, so that the Lord will say, I will go with you because I know your name. That we're going to get a relationship with God and his presence, which dwells within us, that will allow God to know us by name so that when we go up from this place, we go in the presence of the Lord so that the world will know that he is pleased with us and that we are his people. We're going to start in the next coming weeks and maybe months really getting into a study about the Holy Spirit and understanding what it means that we have these gifts and this presence and this dwelling within us. Because we can't go forward without that. Jesus tells the apostles in John 14, this is part of the long speech that he gives prior, and the long teaching he gives the apostles before his arrest in John's gospel. And he has this moment in, in verse 12 where he says to them, and it's part of a teaching on the coming Holy Spirit and the promise of the advocate who is to come and why it's good for him to leave so that the Holy Spirit can come in them. And in verse 12, he even says, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Amen. Jesus says, I'm going to the Father and it's okay. And the apostles want to say, but we've seen you heal people. We've seen you walk on water and we've seen the, the unbelievable. You fed 5,000 people. The dead are alive. How can you say we will do greater things? And Jesus says, because I'm going to God and the Spirit's coming to you. Church, if we're going to aspire to do even greater things, we have to take Jesus at his word. That's right. 
that, that he wants us to do even greater things. That Jesus isn't interested in maintenance mode. That Jesus is interested in a people that are willing to find a path forward even when it's tough. Even when it means crossing the mountains. Does anyone know where I am in my notes? Oh, good. We're going to talk about the Spirit. We're going to talk about the Spirit. We're going to learn about the Spirit. We're going to practice listening. And once we've done some of this work, remedial work at times, sometimes advanced work, we'll see where God takes us and where the church is willing to go. We're going to do some of this work. And coming out of that, what we're going to do is go into a season of listening as a church. We're going to listen to God's spirit, we're going to listen to one another, we're going to listen to the word of God, and we're going to look for new insights for things that God is calling us to. We're going to go into a season of listening, not uh, listening for, we're going, to, we're going to ask God, God, where do you want to send us? What are the skills we need to add? What are the visions that we need that we're not currently envisioning? Where are, uh, where's the map that takes us into uncharted territory? Can you help us to understand it? And the means by which we're going to do that, we'll get into a lot more of this in, in months to come, but the means by which we're going to do that is not by a few of us saying to the rest of you, here's what we've decided based on our own reading and study and human wisdom. What we're going to do is as a church, uh, in the past we've done dream seminars, and we're going to do something like that where we allow all the voices of this congregation to go into a time of listening to God and listening to scripture and prayer and then coming together to talk about the things we love about Northwest and the things that we want to see grow about Northwest and the opportunities and the challenges that are, are ahead and how we can navigate those things. And we're going to let all the voices of this congregation come together and communally see what God helps to rise to the top of our shared mission and vision and understanding of who we are and who God wants us to be. And as we do that, together as a family, we're going to start chasing wherever God sends us. We're just going to go. We're going to go. And we're going to go by the power and gifting and calling of the Spirit, not violating anything that's in Scripture. I'm not, this isn't a revolution. But it can be. <laughs> Mountains aren't like the plains. The Rockies are not the Appalachians. The challenges ahead are not like the challenges behind us. We're going to trust God to put the vision in this congregation and in our membership and in our leaders. And we're going to hear what it is so we can get there together. We need a willingness to fail. We need a willingness to fail. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul's writing about his approach, his missional approach to, to spreading the gospel. And he says, though I'm free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. This is Paul's missional strategy. And, and here's another way of saying it. 
I believe that Paul conducted experiments and adventures in missions. Paul went to the Jews and tried to be Jewish. And he went to the Gentiles and he tried to be Gentilish. And he went to those under the law and he tried to be that way. And everywhere he went, he's just doing experiments. And you know what? Most of them failed. Most of Paul's mission efforts resulted in him being thrown in prison or him being stoned or them trying to kill him. It, it rarely invo involves conversions, but when it does, he says it was worth it because everything I tried through all of the failure, I was able to save some. Oh, yeah. That's the calling. So many churches are, are afraid yeah, of the mountains. So many churches are afraid of failure. So many churches are afraid of, uh, of some of the difficult work that it's ahead. Can we just be okay with the fact that a lot of apostles suffered? Can we be okay with the fact that a lot of missionaries get told no a lot? We need to get okay with failure. And just view every failure as learning one more way to not make a light bulb. Because eventually we'll find the one that does. This failed mission is one way to not make our neighborhood look more like the kingdom of God. Let's see if the next one's better. Let's get comfortable with failure. Because if we're failing eight times so that we can succeed twice, that's twice that our kingdom ministry is able to do the work that God wants done in this place and wherever he sends us in the world. Because we're not afraid that we might look bad or we might be uncomfortable or we might fail. When we fail, let's celebrate that failure and move on to the next strategy. The next experiment, the next adventure. If we're going to be trailblazers, we're going to have to go down some trails that are dead ends. And that's okay. That's the nature of being an exploring adventurer. It's the nature of experimenting with God in a world where he says, don't just maintain. Don't choose the status quo. Because if you choose the status quo, you're just trying to canoe the mountains. We've reached a place where the canoes kindling. We've reached a place where old methods need to be replaced with new methods. We're still the people of God. We're still the people of the word. We're going to become, a, in a greater way, the people who are filled with the spirit. We're going to become people who are on mission. We're no longer maintaining. We're going to become a church on the move. We cannot stay here and survive. God is calling us to vision. We celebrated several weeks ago that we've prayed big prayers in this church over the years. And God says yes. And God says yes. And God says yes. What are the next big prayers that God's going to say yes to from this church? We're going to listen. And as he gives us the words to pray, the spirit will grow on our behalf even when we don't know the words. But we're going to promise God, God, where you send, we will go by the power of your spirit because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Because you are God and your kingdom will persevere. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. We're not afraid. We're not afraid. If you've never accepted this call to to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to have the Spirit dwelling in you, giving you gifts for the purpose of serving the body, to go on mission for God, to be an explorer and an adventurer, I invite you to make that commitment today because God wants you to do even greater things because of who he's called you to be and what he's called you to do. You get baptized, your sins are washed away, you receive the Spirit, you become part of the kingdom, and you get to work. That's what we're called to do, who we're called to be. If you need to respond to that gospel or any other need this morning, please come forward as we stand and sing.